Welcome to the International Power Hour. This is Jean Abshire. I'm here with my co-host Cliff Staten. Uh, good morning, Cliff. Here is a relative statement there. <laughs> Virtually here. I am actually in Michigan this morning and remoting in, so hopefully this will be glitch-free. <laughs> and so your niece is ready to defend her dissertation, that's correct? Yes, she is. It'll great. be this afternoon. That's We're very great. excited. Yep. Yep, I am a proud auntie. So okay. she is a biochemist, so difficult stuff. Um, so uh, we are doing an international news forum uh, this morning. It's been a few weeks since we've talked about what's, what has been going on in the world, and there has been a lot going on. Uh, Cliff, we have uh, very much avoided uh, talking about the Russia investigation because, of course, you know, things have come out through indictments and such as that. But uh, I was a little bit wary, and I think you were too, about wading in before we had any idea of uh, the outcomes of the Mueller report. And of course, the summary of the Mueller report is far from knowing the full contents of the Mueller report. But nevertheless, um, you know, we, we do have uh, a little bit more information now. And so uh, we thought it would be worth uh, talking about uh, the what we do know about uh, Russian involvement in the 2016 election, because we do know that there was involvement. Uh, according to Attorney Bar uh, General Barr, uh, there was no uh, evidence, at least not enough you know, for any charges or anything, um, of formal uh, you know, coordination between anyone in the Trump administration or the Trump campaign and uh, yes, if you, the Russian if government. If you look at his four-page memo or talking points, it's been described about what's in the Mueller report. And, of course, no one outside of the special counsel's office has actually read this. And hopefully right. we'll, we'll get at it at some point in the future here. But Attorney Barr, Attorney General Barr submitted a four-page uh, memo talking about it and uh, we're gonna we're not gonna focus on obstruction charges uh, for no. our, our international hour but he basically said that uh, 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 Mueller did not um, find enough evidence to indicate that the president and his campaign staff their interactions with Russia it did not rise to the level of a criminal conspiracy uh, right. Which is the more accurate word? Collusion is is not a legal term uh, that that one can is it's not illegal in other words. So the correct term is, is criminal conspiracy, and that uh, he there at least according to Attorney General Barr, uh, there was no evidence of an actual agreement between the Trump administration and the Russians. To, that they should, that the Russians should actually interfere in the elections. And I think that's kind of the crucial piece there. But right. that doesn't mean uh, that um, there wasn't a lot going on in terms of, uh, in other words, you, you, you might have evidence leading right up to that, but uh, you can't charge them with criminal conspiracy. Uh, so, so, yes, go ahead. So I'm what sorry. evidence do we have, right? Because, I mean, you know, w there's been all the, the talk um, and this, and mounds and mounds of speculation uh well we especially know on the left um so you know and, and now we have again uh bars assessment uh so what do we actually know because there is absolute concrete evidence that that is public has been released to the public yes uh that there that was we involvement know, we know of the russian that state 
the fact that the Russians did interfere in the election. We know that for a fact. The intelligence agencies cited that, and the Barr, uh, the, or the Mueller report actually provides evidence of that. And in fact, uh, during this investigation, um, there were 26 Russian nationals and three Russian companies who were indicted. Uh, of those Russian nationals, 12 of them <coughs> were from military intelligence. And all of this in terms of interfering in the U.S. U.S. election here. Okay, so that that's factual. We know that 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 happened. We also know that uh, six advisors to President Trump, George Papadopoulos, Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, Michael Flynn, and Michael Cohen, uh, have all been indicted. Five of them have pled guilty to lying about their contacts with Russia, and again, each of them had a. a different type of contact but nonetheless uh, uh, and one is is still is still under indictment at this particular point here uh, there was one particular man from California who was indicted who, who sold uh, uh, IDs to the to the uh, to the Russians in terms of their, their social media attempts to influence the election and there was a London-based lawyer so you've got um, and, and three Russian companies, I don't know if I mentioned that as well, are under indictment as well. So, you know, you've got, um, what is that, uh, 36, 30, uh, do the math here, 32, 35. 35. 35. 26 and, Russian nationals, three companies, and six advi presidential advisors. So you've 35. got indictments and uh, a lot of evidence to support that. So clearly... Uh, there, there was something going on in terms of in terms of um, the Trump administration and uh, their dealings with Russia, and we know that Russia tried to influence. So, so it, you know, I think really the importance of the Mueller report is we really want to see okay, what was the thinking of Mueller? How did he reach the level of not deciding it was a criminal conspiracy? And in terms of We'd like to know more about uh, how the Russians interfered in our election and in terms of, of uh, the Trump Organization, which had meetings with Russians and actually, uh, you know, the president's son encouraged uh, uh, when he found out that the Russians were offering information on the Clinton administer on the Clinton uh, team, uh, he welcomed that. So there's all kinds of, I guess, what some might call smoking guns here, but uh, so but we don't know. You know where where we go from that. In other words, so right. But there is if and and we did mention this uh, months ago. But um, in terms of of Russian activities, specifically uh, illegal, cl clearly illegal activities. Yes. Uh, speci specifically with reference to the election, um, yes. the indictments, which are court documents, official court documents citing evidence. Um, Mueller filed those, and they are publicly available yes, as, as public court documents. And they are a really interesting read. Um, I, I, th I think uh, most people probably hear, like, you know, official legal document and think, oh, my gosh, that's going to be something terrible to wade through. You know, legal language, hard to decipher, but boring. They, but they do explain how the Russians actually interfered. In, in incredible detail, yes, and it's absolutely. written in a very approachable manner. Um, I've read the first set of indictments. I have to admit, I didn't uh, read in detail the second. I read summaries, um, but I did too, uh, so. you know, I would encourage listeners to go to go. They're readily available on the internet. If you Google, you know, Mueller indictment of Russians, you will get the actual documents. Um, 
and they are an interesting read, and they are they are approachable for for lay people to the law, um, and it and they lay out in amazing detail exactly how. Um, like Democratic National Committee computers were targeted and um, the type of, of malware used to gain access to you know various computers. I mean the, the detail in these indictments based on you know cyber forensics is incredible. Yeah, it so will how, probably how, make how you social, paranoid. How social media was <laughs> manipulated also uh, using yeah. uh, uh, this very uh, detailed internet re research agency, which is basically uh, Russians trying to spread propaganda and forming right. uh, imaginary groups that were anti-Hillary and pro-Trump and using Facebook and whatever uh, other social media sites to 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 basically foment um, um, dissension in the American public here. Yeah, I mean, and they these indictments they have like specific names of groups. I mean, it is the detail is incredible, um, and so uh, you know I would really encourage listeners to uh, you know take the leap and look up those indictments and just see actually very specifically how the Russians um, did. So, get in, in, in many and ways, one one things. might look at this and say, well. Um, no criminal conspiracy. One might argue, well, that's a good thing. The president and his team is not guilty of treason, right? Uh, because yeah. that would be a treasonous offense, uh, as far as I'm concerned, a criminal conspiracy to, to allow it the Russians to... It is a shocking to, notion. It is. It really is. And, yeah. But there are other facts that do, in other words, the Trump administration, the organization, did have meetings with Russians, and did have contacts with Russians. Those are documented uh, in terms of, of how they uh, uh, how they met with them, and they lied about them. And many of them, five of the individuals, uh, are, are were found guilty because they lied about uh, their contacts with with Russia. Uh, so there's, to me, still a lot of unanswered questions, and that's why. Uh, I think uh, it, uh, I'm going to reserve judgment and until the, when the Mueller report, report is actually released, although there's some question as to when that may occur. The Attorney General has said that he's going to release a redacted version by mid-April, although I think today the House Judiciary Committee um, is actually going to issue subpoena, or vote on subpoenas and issue subpoenas to the uh, Department of Justice for a a release of the entire document, the, an unredacted version of the document. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see what happens there. Yeah. So Cliff, let me just get your take on this. So I think a lot of people, I mean, elections happen within a cultural context, right? And we love winners, right? Absolutely. As yes. a society, we love winners. And, um, you know, like, I imagine there are people out there who saying who are saying, well, you know, I mean, whatever. People vote. You got to do whatever you can do to win. It, you know, nothing illegal happened. There was no criminal conspiracy. So, what's the big deal if um, Donald Trump Jr. and Jared Kushner met with some Russians? I mean, if they had dirt, if there was, you know information maybe information that the public should have if if hillary clinton was doing bad things like why is it so bad if they met with russians to get information i mean they were just trying to win we all try to win we like winners why is this such a big deal 
Well, there are certain rules in terms of, of dealing with foreign enemies. Let, 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 yes, we have, we, Russia, Russia is an enemy of the United States. And dealing with a country like that, uh, interacting with them on an informal basis without, you know, it, it, everything I've ever heard in terms of campaigns, if, if, they were, if you were contacted by a foreign entity, a foreign government, uh, most every campaign I've ever heard of would immediately contact the FBI and say we've been contacted. Uh, the Trump administration, uh, the Trump organization, campaign organization, did not do that. They welcomed uh, these types of interactions. And this is such a break with norms of standards, of ethical behavior, of proper behavior that uh, it, 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 th this should trouble Americans, in other words. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I mean, aren't rules made to be broken? No rules aren't made to be broken, especially when you're dealing with dealing with foreign powers. Uh, um, you know, and and you've got issues uh, of several of his members actually worked for foreign governments. Paul Manafort had, had was, you know, if you look at the charges against him, here's a man who illegally worked for Russian interests in the Ukraine. He was heavily in debt to them. He allegedly uh, gave polling data uh, to the Russians. I mean, these are yeah. serious, serious breaches of, of, of what we would expect in terms of the way elections should be run in a democracy. Yeah. Uh, and we, think, we should think, fear these types of things. Yeah. I think that last word, democracy, uh, is a key thing. There is a concept called the rule of law, which Absolutely. is um, like one of the most fundamental foundational things for having a democracy. And the rule of law means that everybody is subject to the law. No one can be above it. And without that basic basic principle, there really can be no democracy. Um, so, you know, it's, it's uh, I think, easy to think, well, you know, everybody cheats, except at some point, like, the rule of law has to exist and has to be respected. These, these laws, these rules do matter. And without them, we cannot have democracy. And everybody doesn't cheat. That, that's just a myth. Everybody does not yeah. cheat. Um, That's true. And so, and the extent of, of, of the Trump administration from the very beginning denying any contacts whatsoever with the Russians and ultimately all this information, the facts now coming out that they did interact with them, all of this uh, should be, should be of, of keen interest to, to the United States in terms of the future future elections, because we know the Russians are going to try to interfere in the future. Uh, they've not only interfered in U.S. elections, but in, in Europe as well. So these yeah. are things that we need to know. And again, you're exactly right. The rule of law, if, if, if democracy is important to you and the rule of law is important to you, this is not this so-called black and white issue. Um, uh, you know, it's portrayed that uh, Trump was exonerated, the president was exonerated. Well, this again, this is not a black and white issue. It may not rise to a criminal conspiracy, and I would argue that's a good thing. Our president, as I oh, said yes. earlier, is, is not a traitor. But there are so many things that happen up to that. We need to understand and make sure that this never happens again. Yeah. Because, well, you know, again, it didn't rise to the level of criminal conspiracy, which is, again, just truly unthinkable um, or should be which is a very high uh, you know, level there's clearly some there there I mean people were clearly they've admitted it uh, 
lying about absolutely their yes yes so we'll um, we'll so see where it well, goes once once the report is uh, released whether we get the redacted version or the the full release uh, I guess we'll 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 wait and see here but uh, uh, this is something that all of you should be concerned about and not just let, let's forget about it and move on uh, yes, there are important things, policy issues that need to be discussed, but at the same time, uh, I would argue that it's every citizen ought to at least at least look at a summary of when this report comes out and see what see the extent of the connections between the administration and the Russians and judge for themselves. Um, uh, so and the evidence. And the evidence. Because it won't just be a summary. There will be... It yes. should discuss the, very concretely the evidence. Yes, that, that's, the, that's the crucial part. Any report yeah. uh, coming out of the Department of Justice like this is going to have uh, the actual evidence. There won't be opinions there. This is what we based it on. So yeah. it's going to be interesting to watch as it goes forward. As I said, this to me gets it really, and as you said, you indicated earlier, it gets at the heart of U.S. democracy here. So why don't we, at this point, Gene, kind of take a, a, a short break here and uh, International Power Hour. We'll be back in just a minute or two. As humans, we ask ourselves all kinds of questions. But what if we were forced to ask ourselves a question every day that affected the outcome of the most basic things, the most important things in our lives? The question is, what is your sexual orientation or gender identity? And the answer is the difference between keeping your job or getting fired. The answer is the difference between staying in your home or getting evicted. The answer is the difference between receiving medical treatment or not. Because in 31 states, it's legal to discriminate against people based on their answer to this question. LGBT Americans have the right to say, I do, but they don't have the same basic rights as everyone else. Get the facts at beyondido.org. Brought to you by the Gill Foundation and the Ad Council. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the International Studies Department at IU Southeast, where you can prepare for your global future. More information online at ius.edu slash international dash studies. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Welcome back. This is Cliff Staten of the International Power Hour. My co-host, Gene Abshire, is at the University of Michigan today. And uh, we're, we've been chatting a little bit about the Mueller report and Russian interference in the elections and... Uh, <clears throat> 
the uh, fact that uh, the uh, apparently the uh, Mueller report did not find evidence of a criminal conspiracy. Uh, but clearly, we've chatted a little bit about the ties uh, with Russia that the Trump administration had. So, uh, again, I think our argument was that uh, this is so important that we need to understand those connections, especially if we're concerned about the rule of law and democracy. Um, so I thought we'd, we'd move on to another topic here. Um, I don't think we've ever chatted about Thailand. Uh, but, I think so. Uh, this will be a first. Um, Thailand uh, held elections uh, this past week, and it, it was did. the March fir 24th. first since a coup occurred in 2014. So, Gene, uh, would you like to maybe get us up to speed on maybe a little bit about Thailand and, and what's going on and why this is important? Yeah, so just to make sure that um, listeners who, who may not be, um, you know, have a, have a strong background in political science, um, a coup is a military takeover of an elected government. So that's a bad thing. <laughs> if, you're, if you're interested in democracy, a coup is, is bad. Um, and as, as, as Cliff said, uh, Thailand had a coup in, in 2014. And since that time, they have been governed by a group of military leaders called a military junta. Um, and the military has decided to uh, permit elections and uh, restore democracy in a manner. Uh, and, that, and so they, <laughs> uh, I'll come back to that. <laughs> and so that's why they held these elections. Um, but, you know, military juntas who are able to call lots of shots uh, often uh, set things up to advantage themselves. And that is what has happened here. Um, while the military was uh, in power for these last five years, uh, they have um, made a new constitution. And um, the Thai legislature is like the U.S. Congress in that it is, it is bicameral. There's an upper house and a lower house. And the new constitution um, allows the military junta the power to appoint all 250 members of the Senate. Effectively, so, effectively giving them kind of a veto. Absolutely. Um, and uh, so, they, so this election was for the, the lower house in Thailand, so sort of like our House of Representatives. There are 500 seats there. Um, and uh, the military also had a political party, effectively, um, running, a, a, a party allied with, with the junta. And um, their, their lead candidate, uh, who who they are hoping will become prime minister uh, is the former army chief who staged the coup. He has uh, stepped down from that uh, position, but he is uh, you know he, he was, is of the military and allied with the military. This was General Chanacha, is that correct, or am I? Um, did I, I get the wrong so, yes. name there? I think that's uh, no, correct. No, I think that's yes. right. Yeah. So um, so they had the election on, on March twenty fourth, and there's some pr preliminary data. Um, it looks like. Uh, the pro-military party, um, and, and I'm not going to try to pronounce it actually because Thai names are really difficult and I would just assume not, not um, do badly with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thai is really hard. Yeah. Um, but, but it looks like the pro-military the pro party um, actually, it looks like, got the largest number of votes by maybe half a million. Um, and an op the main opposition party, uh, as expected, um, I mean, 
you know, did well, uh, but it, it looks like they came in second, and that, that actually wasn't as expected. This was very uncertain. But the thing is, um, the, the, there's no official results yet. The, the outcomes are still considered... We don't considered know the count, in other words. Yeah, the, 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 yeah, it's still considered inconclusive, and it may not be clear for weeks. And so things are in a fair state of disarray. Um, the military has, uh, just yesterday, in fact, the Army chief warned against protests um, because they are um, concerned about protests becoming, um, you know, well... They're not going to well, allow them to come well, violent. It, but there's a history of that. It's very likely protests to occur as expectations oh, yeah. of, of a move, yeah. at least a step towards more democratic system and expectations of a vote. And if you put the results yeah. off, frustration sets in that this can lead to lead to uh, violence or riots or and all yes. kinds of things. This is not Although the, this is pretty common. Yes, although the Thai military also has shown very, very little tolerance for protest um, and in this in this time period. In fact, so this is all part of a of a of a very larger context um, that has divided Thai politics for for about the last twenty years. Um, the The crux of this is a massive conflict. Um, between two factions um, that have have developed in a very polarized context in Thailand, um, all revolving around those who are in who support and who oppose the former prime minister um, who took power democratically elected in 2001, a man by the name of Taksin Shinawatra. Um, he is the first prime minister in Thai history to have um, won with a parliamentary majority, again, back in 2001. Right. Um, so, so, you know, that's pretty significant. Um, and he or his uh, uh, p p uh, parties uh, and candidates that support him have won every single um, election in Thailand since then. Um, to 2001, 2005, 2007, and then 2011, which was the last election prior to um, this one on March 24th. Um, so clearly, I mean, that suggests some some support. Um, the, the elections have, have not been completely without problems, but I think they're generally considered, um, you know, reasonably appropriate. Um, but but Taksin, go ahead. And then Sorry. the military stepped in in 2014. And in 2006, this is the yes. second coup, um, basically to oppose, and it, the, two, the 2006 coup actually removed Taksin from power. He was, again, elected in 2001, re-elected in 2005, and then they staged a coup against him in 2006. Um, and then he fled the country in um, 2008. He was being um, tried for... Um, on allegations of corruption, which he said was politically motivated, and so he fled. Um, his sister uh, actually became uh, prime minister and, and then was removed in a coup. Uh, so this has been, um, you know, a very divisive and ongoing thing so between the rationale these two factions. For, the rationale for the coup was primarily corruption. Um, that was the first in 2006, and then... Um, what happened between 2006 and, and the 2014 coup is that the two camps within Thailand, again, the pro and anti-Taksin camps, really, um, uh, I mean, it, it came down to street battles at, at, right. at 
at some point. I mean, it became um, really, really disruptive. Normal politics really didn't function. At one point, they, um, uh, one group or the other occupied the Bangkok airport for um, four or five days and sh pretty much shut down much you know, disorder, the country in many respects. Uh, civil society not functioning, and quite often militaries will. They see themselves as the defender of the nation, so to speak, and it, it's not unusual for military in many countries to step in this situation. Well, and, I'm and not in defending this context, it, I'm just saying. Right, just say, absolutely. Uh, in this context, too, we have the Thai monarchy, um, and the, the Thai king, uh, like, and I say the Thai king, I kind of mean the Thai king, right. uh, <laughs> longest serving monarch, served uh, for like, was on the throne for like 70 years, died uh, two years ago, two and a half years ago. And, um, the military saw itself as a defender of the monarchy, and Toxine um, had some very populist tendencies, and so, you know, that was more anti-monarchy, although the reverence for, of the Thai people in general for this late king was incredible. Um, but uh, some of this is, is involving the monarchy, and now we see the monarchy, um, you know, also, with the new king uh, actually coming out and speaking politically for the first time, the, the late king very much stayed out of politics, as is normal in a constitutional monarchy. Yes. Um, in a constitutional monarchy, the, the monarch is really a figurehead, a symbol, um, has a ceremonial role, but does not play any practical political roles. Um, and, and the late king really kept himself in that position, um, as is appropriate for a country becoming more democratic. But this new king, um, his son, uh, has very recently, um, in the context of the election, inserted himself. Um, in fact, on election eve, he made um, some comments that were, um, you know, not specifically endorsing uh, the pro-military party, but uh, he has uh, taken explicit actions uh, since the election, actually, that um, are against the pro-toxine factions. Okay, so that um, that's kind of up in the air in terms of where it goes next, right? It is, but it's very much something to watch. Okay. Um, Thailand was considered to be, you know, on its way to uh, developing democracy. And, um, you know, with two, two coups in the last 20, uh, yeah, less than 20 years, um, you know, it's, it's something to watch. Right. Okay. Lots of repression of civil liberties, of course. Sure. Yeah. Well, speaking of, of uh, things up in the air, uh, ah. we've chatted quite a bit over the last year and so about Brexit. But uh, uh, <laughs> tell us about the ongoing saga of Brexit. What, what's happened in the last few weeks, a couple weeks here, Jean? Weeks. <laughs> It's day by day. Hour day by, by hour. day, yes, yes. <laughs> it's actually today, yes. <laughs> yeah, and yes, 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 yes. Um, I mean, it's it's pretty crazy. So, um, boy, it's hard to even remember where we left off. Uh, so Prime Minister May uh, went back to the European Union and, uh, you know, tried to ask, <coughs> excuse me, ask for... Um, time, more uh, time. Which, well, not even just time. She was initially asking for, you know, more... For, for help with with redoing the deal uh, into something that she could get past the British Parliament after the after her deal failed twice um, in votes and the Europeans at this point um, kind of in a sense staged an intervention and said okay 
here's the deal. If, if within the next week you can um, get your parliament to back your deal, um, we will give you more time until uh, May 22nd. If you cannot, in a week, get your parliament to back the deal, then you have two choices. <laughs> you can either um, crash out on April 12th, which is a little bit later than, than planned because yes. we were already supposed to have had Brexit on the on the um, last Friday, or um, if you can come up with another plan, uh, you can have a longer term departure. Uh, so, so she, got, but she has members even of her own party that uh, haven't agreed oh with gosh. her. Yes, which is unusual yes, in uh, British politics. Oh my gosh, this is. I mean, what has what is going down in Britain right now is is so abnormal. Uh, it's. I feel like I should just throw out everything I've ever taught about Britain and start over because because nothing is functioning normally. Um, the Parliament has seized. Base, I mean, has basically seized control um, to a to a really high degree. Um, they finally, after voting down her plan uh, the other day, after the post um, after the EU's you know uh, setting down of the options, um, they started taking uh, what they call indicative votes. They're non-binding. They're sort of like straw poll, temperature taking kind of things. Um, and on the twenty seventh of March, they took eight indicative votes about different possible options ranging from um, crashing out, uh, just leaving no deal, whatever, to um, revoking uh, the, the departure at all, <laughs> and everything in between, um, having a confirmatory referendum where the people could vote on whatever deal came out, um, the Labor Party has a plan, option for a customs, I mean, all there were eight different sort of choices. Um, and every single one of them failed, which has really, um, I mean, the, probably is the clearest signifier of what has plagued this entire process since 2016 um, when the people voted to Brexit, um, which is they want out and they have no plan right. um, and have no, 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 no idea exactly what they want. No Absolutely none. Over what, to, over what to do at this point. Absolutely none. And so we had eight indicative votes that all failed on um, the 27th. They came back on April uh, 1st and did another four indicative votes um, for a customs union, which is basically um, uh, having no internal barriers right. uh, within... No barriers uh, the, to trade, but it's not a, a common market. Right. A, and a common market adds free movement right. of uh, labor Factors goods, of people, production. capital services. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So um, they had a vote on a customs union, on a customs market, or a common market, sorry, um, on another public vote to confirm any deal that was passed, um, and then also a... Um, model they called parliamentary uh, supremacy, which was a series of votes to prevent a crash out, um, again on April 12th, and all four of those votes failed. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, it's just unbelievable. The, the, sp the closest one to pass was the, con was the customs union. Um, that was defeated by only three votes, which is, it's getting closer, but boy, uh, so far from being there still. Um, so yesterday, uh, I mean, and this is—I mean, this is pure crisis at this point. I mean, the situation or the the, the governance is essentially imploded with this. Um, yesterday, and all, and all of this does not calm the fears of business owners, financial oh my gosh, institutions. No. It's like, 
what do we do? How do we respond? This is giving me indigestion, and I yes. have no... Yeah, I have no dog in the fight. <laughs> yeah, it's just, I mean, this is, business hates uncertainty. Absolutely. This yep. is, and there is, this is unprecedented in uncertainty. This is a, this is a nightmare. Um, so yesterday, uh, interestingly, uh, there was a seven-hour cabinet meeting, uh, which I think probably wasn't pleasant from what I've read about it. Um, and at the end of the seven hours of cabinet meeting, uh, Prime Minister May would not let the cabinet leave uh, number 10 Downing Street, and she took away their cell phones while she went out and made a statement. <laughs> so clearly she has no trust in her cabinet. I mean, usually the norm in British politics is that the cabinet presents an absolutely united front right. um, with no no variation, no deviation. At least no public um, public. Uh, oh, oh yeah, absolutely. Internally, they, they can yes. disagree all over the place, but yes. in public, it is a it is a united front. Um, clearly, that has completely broken down. Um, and she, uh, again, before uh, pr limiting their communications, so they couldn't uh, basically leak what she was going to do, which a lot of them disagreed with, um, before she could get out and make her public statement, uh, she went out and said that uh, she was going to meet with the Labor Party, uh, the prime opposition. So um, this is sort of the equivalence of uh, you know the head of the Republicans going out and saying, okay, the Republicans can't agree. We are going to sit down with the Democrats and see if we can figure <laughs> out a deal. Um, some might call that adulting at this point. Um, I, uh, <laughs> well, That's something's got to give here. Yes, yes. Something's got to give here. Um, and uh, she has been absolutely thrashed by the anti uh uh, the people, the anti-EU folks, the pro-Brexit folks, um, in the last 24 hours from that, and um, I don't, I, I'm not going to predict uh, what will happen with the negotiations for the Labor Party uh, if they come up with something, and even actually being invited to the table, that does give Labor some some responsibility now, yes, although it it's still fundamentally yes. her problem. And it's a problem, um, but, uh, you know, we'll we'll see um the labor party wants a customs union right and um you know that is a that is a departure from what uh may has been seeking it's quite it's quite different from her deal many people say that's not a real brexit um many people say that basically it handcuffs the uk to the eu um it's not, a, it's not a real break is what people what, it's not what except it's want. worse than that yes. um because you're there's the the uk would still be bound to all of the eu trade policies essentially and border so policies, they, they wouldn't have their northern ireland and ireland Right, and so they wouldn't have they wouldn't have their quote unquote sovereignty back, um, but they also wouldn't have a vote in any EU policies and institutions. <laughs> so the, essentially, like they've got all the obligation and and no say, or not all of the obligation, but but a lot of the obligation, and yeah, and no say, um, and you know that's that's not what people were expecting. Um, so okay. well, let uh, it's who knows? It's still a big question mark. Obviously, but big, it's crazy, and you have to. It, it changes by the hour. So, why don't we take a, a a quick break here, and then we'll come back in about thirty seconds. Okay. Okay, that's gonna have to be a quick one. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Political Science Program at IU Southeast. Are you interested in how power is exercised by the people? Political science might be the major for you. Whether it's the political science or public administration track. 
you will get the skills to make you ready for a powerful career. To find out how to do this, go to www.ius.edu political science. The International Power Hour is brought to you by the Department of Political Science at IU Southeast, studying power in all its forms and places, offering multiple tracks in political science and public administration. More information online at ius.edu slash political dash science. Hi, this is Christina Ricci with RAIN. Every two minutes, another American is sexually assaulted. If you or someone you know has been sexually assaulted, you are not alone. Help is just a call or click away through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Please call 1-800-656-HOPE, that's H-O-P-E, or visit RAIN.org, that's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. Brought to you by RAIN and this station. Welcome back to the International Power Hour. I'm Cliff Staten, my co-host Gene Abshire, who's at the University of Michigan today, and our intern... Tegan, who's taking care of the boards here today. I want a quick shout out to his, to his grandmother in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, Jean, we've, we've chatted about a lot of unfinished business here. Yes. Um, we have but, more. <laughs> uh, you know, and there, we're running out of time, it looks like, in terms of what yeah. we've proposed. But um, um, recent events with, with U.S. and Israel. Um, yeah, there's been a lot going on, um, both with the Golan Heights, which is something we've never talked about, um, and with Gaza. Um, well, Cliff, do you want to? Yes, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, why don't you why don't you explain a little bit about what's been happening? Well, let's let's just focus on the Golan Heights, okay? This is um, uh, if you don't know, the Golan Heights is an area between uh, Syria and Israel. Uh, north would be northeast uh, Israel and southwest Syria. Uh, it's an area that. Um, was traditionally part of Syria, uh, and that, uh, and it kind of, it's, it's a high plateau that overlook, you can overlook both Israel if you, if you claim it, and overlook Syria as well. So, you know, from and a- And height is strategic. From in a terms strategic of military, military perspective, yeah. it's pretty important. Yeah. So what had happened being, as it was, is when Israel was created in 1948, from 1948 to 1967, the Syrians often used this, these, these, this, the Golan Heights to fire artillery shells into Israel. And then you had the Six Day War in 1967, where Israel basically uh, um, took control of the Golan Heights and, uh, and put it under military control and unilaterally annexed it in 1981. Now I say unilaterally because basically uh -huh. uh, control Israeli control of the Golan Heights is viewed by virtually every country in the world and the United Nations as contrary to international law, contrary to dozens of UN Security Council resolutions, and uh, but nonetheless, so unilaterally annexed, but not recognized as not recognized, yes, by anybody, pretty That's much, correct. Yes. Um, yes. including, in, I mean, anybody. Including That's the U.S. Including the United States. Years. Until... Yeah, an illegal takeover of land. Right. Until just yeah. recently. Until this right. past week when President Trump recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. And this, this has caused quite a stir. Again, mm -hmm. uh, we're not sure what the effect will actually be because, again, every other country in the world and the U.N. simply does not recognize that. Uh, but Although the control is there, I mean, it is de facto yes. uh, annexed, yes. right? And, and everybody knows that, too. Like, 
everybody says that's illegal under international law, but at the same time, like, that is the yes. on-the-ground reality. And s yeah. since 1967, you know, the Israelis have uh, created settlements. There are 34 mm -hmm. Jewish settlements in the area, best estimate about 23,000 settlers. Most of the Syrians fled after the Six-Day War and, le and left the region. And, and as Jean said, it, it strategically in terms of, of um, a military point of view, it is important. But it's also important for a couple other reasons in terms of natural resources, water, for example. Yep. Um, much of the water from uh, the area actually feeds uh, the Jordan River. So it's basically, it, it affects the water supply of Israel. This is why it is one of the reasons it's extremely important as to perhaps who, who, control, who controls this. And in fact, if you would go back to the, you know, much of the negotiations, past negotiations over making the Golan hunts go back to, go back to Syrian control has been over where the boundaries would be. And in the pre-1967 borders, uh, that would give Damascus or Syria control of the eastern shore of Sea of Galilee, and that again could affect water, right, water, well, the water needs of Israel. So water is extremely important, and we also know just recently in 2015, um, an Israeli company, which is a part of a, 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 an old company here in the United States, actually has discovered oil, substantial amounts of oil, in the Golan Heights. So, and there's a, a potential for uh, quite a bit of, 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 of investment, uh, potential for oil sales abroad. And so again, so it's not just a military uh, strategic point. It also has to do with water and possibly in the future would be oil here. Uh, it's interesting that again, this is uh, part of um, uh, the Trump administration's move to, uh, I'm not so sure the correct word, deepen U.S. ties or overwhelming support for the Netanyahu administration. Maybe I should put it that way, for the Netanyahu yes. government. Uh, and this Which is was up the, for election within yes, the next Yes, the timing weeks. of this was, was even supporters of Netanyahu said it was kind of suspicious because this clearly plays to uh, some of the uh, far right-wing Israeli parties that are now supporting Netanyahu in terms of their goal of creating a, a greater Israel and so on and so forth. So um, Netanyahu said it was a religious miracle. Yes, yes, uh, uh, yes. So yeah. uh, this is to kind of uh, raise the eyebrows. It, it's a clear, just like uh, recognizing Jerusalem, it's a clear departure from U.S. policy. Uh, where that will go at this particular point, I guess uh, we're not sure, but uh, it, it's clearly, uh, you know, it, it, and it's interesting, you, we make the military argument, but you have to remember we have missiles now, and so right. both countries, missiles, and I'm not so sure, you know, if, if we were fighting tanks like we did in 1967, the Golan Heights might be extremely important. I'm not too sure in today's warfare uh, if, if Military, and I'm not a military person, but uh, I'm not so sure it's as important as it once was anyway. Uh, yeah. But so, oil and water. Yes. But this is, this, is a, this is a symbolic act, essentially, to help, it, it yes. appears probably to help Prime Minister Netanyahu with his, um, with his election right. uh, coming up very soon. But this is also a real poke in the eye to um, the Arab community in yes, the surrounding it states. Yes, it is. Um, yes. It is a provocation to them, um, which just, just is Just like the recognition of, it, of Jerusalem was as the capital. 
Right. So. It, it, it further distances the U.S. from being a neutral actor that could facilitate um, peace talks yes. between we, we have the prided our, Yes, we have prided yep. ourselves over the years of being a neutral uh, mediator between Israel and uh, the Palestinians, but... Um, uh, you know, I'm not so sure we've really been neutral, but nonetheless, we were the major actor who might be able to pull something off, make that work. But this, again, as you indicated, this this is kind of a poke in the eye and that uh, clearly it, it's almost impossible for us to be neutral at this point. And President Trump does have, um, you know, goals of bringing peace between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Um, Jared Kushner is in charge of that initiative. He has said at various points that he will be announcing his plan. Uh, I think after the election at some point he said that that would happen. Um, and this may very well make it harder. Yes, and this is a plan that's been really uh, under wraps. Uh, and there have yeah, been yeah. a lot of people involved no in the discussion. No hints. Uh, uh, if he's successful, he will be successful where no one has been successful before. So I guess that remains to be seen. Um, we uh, wanted to talk a little bit about Gaza, but it I looks like time-wise <laughs> time it's going to be impossible today. So maybe yeah. we can pick this up uh, uh, maybe next week or two and maybe bring uh, Ken Stammerman on to talk a little bit about the Gaza Strip and, and what's happening there. Uh, we have, we're going to play today, and Gene, I want to thank you for coming in from the University of Michigan today. Uh, that helped a lot. Happy to do so. And we're going we're gonna to do one of our passports and politics today, uh, one of them that I did. Uh, we're gonna, uh, if you'll remember, I did one on travel in Havana, but uh, uh, as I point out in this little piece, um, uh, it's like uh, going to Louisville and saying you've been to Kentucky. If you, if you just go to Havana, you really haven't been to Cuba. So we're going to talk about uh, traveling outside of Havana, or I'm going to talk about traveling outside of Havana, a small town of Coimar. And also I'm going to focus primarily on Santiago, which is one of my favorite cities in, in Cuba. And it it's, has a distinctly Afro-Cuban flavor that is very, very different than Havana. So, uh, Gene, thank you. And, thank you. Uh, uh, for all of you listening, thank you to the International Power Hour. We hope you'll listen in to Passports and Politics, uh, Travel and Politics Outside of Havana. Thank you. For all the latest information and news that affects you, you're listening to Horizon Radio, the student voice of IU Southeast. The Office of International Programs would like to invite you to the 2019 International Festival, taking place Monday, April 15th from 5 to 8 p.m. in the Hoosier Room. A celebration of culture and diversity, the International Festival is a multicultural display of local international vendors and performers. Come see live dancers and musicians, listen to a brief bagpipe performance, watch Indian and Greek dancers, listen to West African performers, and more. We almost forgot the best part. There will be food. An international tasting menu will be available to sample for a small fee. Door prizes will be awarded for those in attendance. I tell my students that if you only go to Havana, you can't really claim you've been to Cuba. There's Havana, and then there's the rest of Cuba. It would be like going to Louisville and claiming that you've seen Kentucky. But some quick reminder about traveling Cuba. As an American, you cannot travel as a tourist. You must be part of an educational group. 
Please check the State Department website for updated information as President Trump is making it more difficult to travel to the island. When traveling, as I always tell people, always bring some hand sanitizer and a roll of toilet paper. Just put them in your backpack anytime you go out. You should also have some local coins because sometimes you have to pay for the toilet and toilet paper is rare in Cuba. That's the need for a roll of toilet paper. So, let's travel outside of Havana, Cuba. You can take a cab just east of Havana to the quiet fishing village of Coimar, which was the setting for Ernest Hemingway's greatest novel, The Old Man and the Sea. It was the home of Gregorio Fuentes, who captained Hemingway's boat, the Pilar, and who was the inspiration for Santiago in The Old Man and the Sea and for Antonio in Islands in the Stream. Visit some of the local bars near the waterfront and you'll see pictures of Hemingway and Fuentes. Talk to the locals and the bartenders. They typically will know a little bit of English, and if you know a little bit of Spanish, then it's perfect. If you are a fisherman, ask them if any of them fish anymore. This will lead to a wonderful talk about fishing as part of the culture and the politics of fishing. Overfishing has been quite common, and the locals are catching fewer fish in the waters off Cuba, and they compete with state-owned fishing companies. The new Cuban government is beginning to address this issue of sustainability in the fishing areas, though. To get to the remainder of Cuba, you must travel by bus, train, or air. The majority of Americans that go to Cuba are there as part of an educational group, so most of the travel has been arranged for you and you won't have to worry about it. If you are not with a group, note that there are two main bus lines, Via Sul and Transgaviota. Transgaviota is the bus line that is run by the military which I would note also runs most of the tourist sites in Cuba. You will have to pay with either U.S. dollars or kooks, which are convertible pesos. I don't recommend renting a car as cars often break down in Cuba and it can be a real headache when you're in the middle of nowhere between cities broken down on the Carretera Central, which is the main road which connects the major cities of Cuba. You can also take a train across Cuba, which I've never done and would love to do at some point in the future. Finally, just a quick reminder that you should really have a traveling partner if you're not part of a larger educational group. If you have time, you should visit cities such as Pinar del Rio in the west or toward the east the cities of Santa Clara, Trinidad, uh, Sinfuegos, Camagüey, Olguin, and Bayamo. But in this episode of Politics and Passports, I'm going to focus on Santiago, Santiago de Cuba. It's on the eastern side of the island. Santiago is distinctly Afro-Cuban. While officially Afro-Cubans make up 10% of the population, unofficially I've seen estimates as high as 50%. Historically, Afro-Cubans have been discriminated against even after the revolution. Once you get to know a few Afro-Cubans, they will talk about this discrimination with you. Also, if you're an African-American, more than likely you will suffer some subtle forms of discrimination, such as your bags being the last taken off your bus, or maybe you are the last to be served in a restaurant. If this happens, please let your tour director know immediately. As I said, Santiago is a distinctly Afro-Cuban, and the intermix of Catholicism and African religion is present throughout the city. Just kind of pay attention to the graffiti on the walls. It is also the center for Cuban music. It is the birthplace of the rumba, the son, and the trova. You hear it playing at so many different venues in Santiago. 
spend an evening out at one of the local clubs, dance, drink, and meet local Cubans, I would recommend the Casa de la Trova because there's a real opportunity, as I said, to meet with local Cubans who are more than willing to talk to Americans. You may get lucky, and some of the members of the legendary Buena Vista Social Club may be playing at the Casa de la Trova. If you're into Cuban history, a trip to the Moncada, Mount, Moncada Barracks and Museum is a must, as this is often identified as the beginning of the Cuban Revolution. As an American, a walk, a walk up San Juan Hill is well worth it, and you can use your imagination to see Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders charge up the hill. A visit to Morro Castle, or Fortress, which is a World Heritage Site, was built by the Spanish to protect the city from pirates like Henry Morgan. This is quite an adventure, and the view is breathtaking. I recommend that uh, you go to one of the local Catholic churches or Protestant churches. The people in Santiago are so willing to speak to foreigners, and once you try to pick up a discussion, you will inevitably learn about life and politics. Just outside of Santiago is the small village of El Cobre, which is the most sacred pilgrimage site for Catholics in Cuba. The cathedral is striking, and Pope Francis visited there in 2015. Getting around the city in a taxi is easy, and from my experience, the best way to learn about life in Santiago. The drivers are more than willing to tell you about how they make a living and what life is like in the city, even if it is in half Spanish and half English. Don't be afraid to try your Spanish. The Cubans are very grateful for you at least trying. Make sure that you and your group have dinner at one of the paladares. These are private restaurants, often in the home or backyard of, the fa of a family. The food, rum, and cigars are great. This is a real opportunity to talk with Cubans, learn about their lives, and have a great time. Offer to help clean up afterward, and it will open up to even more discussion about the role of women in Cuban family life. You should also take a trip to the small village of Santo Domingo, which is the base of the Sierra Maestra Mountains just west of Santiago, and get the local guys to take you on a hike up the mountain to visit the remote headquarters of Fidel and Che, where they planned the revolution. You can also stay overnight in a small set of cabins or cabanas with a small but nice restaurant. If you are in an educational group, be sure and have this scheduled. The locals and your guides are easy to talk to, and you can learn much about rural life in Cuba. Don't be surprised to see a pig walking by your cabana. The locals will let you ride their horses and donkeys for a small fee. Welcome to rural Cuba and its intersection with tourism. Santiago is a real treasure, and if you're willing to open up to the locals about your life, you will learn much about life and politics in this distinctly Afro-Cuban city.